2: James was described by his English subjects as being unkingly, so he wasn't gracious or charming, he didn't appear very regal. He arrived from Scotland with a heavy cold, complaining about the English weather. Um, When he took a drink, he was said to dribble because he kind of couldn't drink without dribbling down himself. He was, and I quote, forever fiddling with his codpiece.
3: That was Tracy Borman discussing her first historical novel, All of this week we're running special programmes of the History Extra podcast to celebrate the fact that we've just released our 500th episode. In each programme we're interviewing one of our favourite guests from the past 11 years and today it's the turn of Tracy Borman, a historian, author and joint chief curator of Historic Royal Palaces. She's also been a frequent contributor to the magazine and podcast over the years. Having written several works of popular history, Tracy has recently published her first historical novel, set in the reign of King James VI and I. And this was the subject of her conversation with our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne.
0: Tracy, you've written a lot of non fiction books in, in the realms of Tudor history, royal history, but you've recently written your first fiction novel. Um, can you tell us a bit about? The King's Witch and why you wanted to write it? Sure. Well, I mean, it's been a long cherished
2: ambition to write fiction. I read historical fiction all the time. Um, Obviously, I read a lot of uh, non fiction books for my research, for my day job, if you like, but I love novels. I love the escapism of of historical novels. And I guess I'd never thought that I would get the chance to write one. I was very much a non-fiction historian. But the idea for this novel came from my non-fiction book on witches. Uh, So a few years ago, I wrote a book about James I and the English witch hunts. And I found the research for that so fascinating and so dark, actually, and disturbing. And I think I couldn't quite convey the, the terror of it in a just straight, Non-fiction book. I mean, you can you can talk the facts and figures and, and what people went through, but somehow I wanted to just dramatize that to really bring the emotions forward, and, and that's really what gave me the inspiration for writing a fictional account of the same period and partly the same theme. So, the King's Witch, as the title suggests, is based on the uh, the witch hunts and James I's obsession with hunting down witches, but it all gets embroiled in uh, the most famous terror plot in history, the gunpowder plot.
0: Um, So at Historic Royal Palaces, you're acquainted with a whole range of historical periods. You could have um, set it in the Victorian period, the Tudor period, the medieval. You have mentioned a bit there about why you chose James's court, but could you tell us a bit more about why that was such a kind of ripe, Backdrop, absolutely. Um, well, I am first and
2: foremost a Tudor historian, so it's probably tantamount to treason that my first novel is uh, is actually on the Stuarts. Um, but I think what particularly drew me to this uh, period was um, having. Worked and researched in the Banqueting House, which is one of Historic World Palace's um, central London um, sites. And of course, it's where Charles I was executed, but it's also where James I loved to entertain and hold lots of masks. So it was the sort of epitome of the early Stuart court. And it really inspired me just being in that space. And it's actually where I launched my non fiction book on witches. And, and so I sort of felt immersed really in the Jacobean period. But um, it is fascinating and it, I think it is unjustifiably neglected. I think perhaps we are now seeing a little bit more about the Stuarts. I know there's a there's a TV series recently called um, there are a few more books coming out, but it has all been about the Tudors. And I don't get me wrong, I'm still very much a Tudor historian. But what happened next is just as fascinating.
0: Why do you think it has been neglected, the Stuart period? Do you think it is literally because it is just after the Tudors? So it's almost a hangover from the Tudors? Right? I, yeah, I think that's part of it. I think they're sort of just overshadowed by this
2: glamour and drama and everything else that went before. And it's almost like a bit of a damp square. But you know... A, Elizabeth I dies, Gloriana is no more. And then we get a Scotsman to rule over us because, of course, we're a very xenophobic nation at the time. So, uh, you know, it's seen as a a bit of a disaster that we don't have a homegrown sovereign. But um, at least he's a man uh, because, you know, by 1603, the English people are desperate for a king, having had 50 years of female rule. And, of course, that's seen as something of a disaster. But I think the reason that the Stuarts have been overshadowed is partly thanks to James himself, because he was such a disappointment. People were delighted that they had a king. But when James arrived in England, he was described as unkingly in his habits. He wasn't gracious or charming. He didn't appear very regal. He arrived from Scotland with a heavy cold, complaining about the English weather. Um, When he took a drink, he was said to dribble because he he kind of couldn't drink without dribbling down himself. He was, and I quote, forever fiddling with his codpiece. And so all in all, he was a pretty unpleasant character. And I think... James's um, sort of personal defects, if you like, or his disappointments are part of the reason why, you know,
0: we, we compare the early Stuarts so unfavourably with the Tudors. Of course, the heroine in the book is a young woman called Frances. Why did you want to have a female perspective on this um, court and time period? I think it was
2: really important to me to have a female heroine, particularly to tell the story of the witch hunts, because about 80% of those accused were female. And so it is, you know, it's almost woman hunting, as it was described, not just witch hunting. So that was important to me. Um, And I also wanted to just tell the story of um, how unequal society still was and, and how difficult a woman's lot was in the early 17th century, even though we have had this epitome of female power in Elizabeth I. With James, it it goes back a step and women are very much put in their places generally. So I wanted to show through Francis um, just how much of a battle women tended to have in order to carve out a place in this male-dominated society. Um, You mentioned, of course,
0: witchcraft, which is a big theme in the book. Um, How much did witchcraft actually accusations at this time spring up from James's arrival in England, his own kind of personal fervour about witchcraft and how much was it a wider spread belief that was emerging at this time?
2: I think um, very much it was to do with James because actually we'd been cooling off on the whole idea of the witch hunts during the reign of Elizabeth. They'd peaked and they were on the decline, people were starting to question whether there was even such a thing as, as witchcraft at all. Um, And then James comes with his very fervent belief in witchcraft and suddenly everything changes because, of course, you want to curry favour with your new king and that's why you get the likes of Shakespeare penning Macbeth to flatter the new king. And my favourite bit of pub trivia is that that's why... He made Macbeth shorter than all of his other plays because he knew that James couldn't stand the theatre. So there you go. He made it a nice short witch play for James. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Suddenly you see a huge upturn in, in the number of uh, witchcraft cases that are brought to trial. Everybody is now talking about it again at court. Pamphlets are being published. And I think you can't underestimate the personal influence of James on that. Um, can you tell us a bit more about James's obsession with witchcraft? Yes, I mean, you'd think it's a quite a strange obsession for a king. Witchcraft was, was widely believed in, but James was particularly obsessed. And it all began um, back in 1589 when he was uh, engaged to Anne of Denmark. And Anne of Denmark, um, they'd been sort of engaged by proxy or married by proxy, and she was on her way over from Denmark, across the North Sea, when her fleet was battered back by a violent storm and she had to go back to Denmark. So James decides to go and get her himself, but his fleet is battered back by a violent storm. Now he eventually makes it, but by the time he gets to Denmark, He has conceived the idea that this was no freak of nature. These storms were whipped up by witchcraft. Somebody was trying to kill the king and his future bride. So he has 70 suspects rounded up back in Scotland. It's the very famous North Berwick Witch Trials. And this is really when James's obsession is born. He writes a book about witchcraft, demonology. It becomes a huge bestseller of its day. And really, then he sees himself as appointed by God to eradicate witches.
0: You'd think really that he had bigger fish to fry um, because there were a lot of political tensions simmering underneath as well. You would, absolutely.
2: I mean, that he had much more important things, arguably, to deal with. But uh, James's obsessions, it was said, burned brightly but briefly. Now, his obsession with witchcraft actually did last a bit longer than most of uh, his obsessions but even he was going off it. Um, within about sort of ten years of, of coming to the throne, he was less interested. He was more interested now in just hunting, not witch hunting. He would just go off on hunts, um, leaving the business of state to the likes of Robert Cecil uh, and his other able ministers. So he didn't really seem that much of a political animal. Actually, he didn't. He very quickly neglected the affairs of state.
0: Can you tell us a bit more about James's? personality, some of his eccentricities and also his um, favourites as well. Yes,
2: sure. Well, James is a fascinating character. Um, He's quite a shocking character in many respects because he didn't um, conform to the, the sort of strict protocol of the court. He lived his private life in public and actually his private life was quite sordid because even though he had this very successful marriage to Anne of Denmark, he was... If not um, homosexual, he was bisexual. Um, he had many male lovers. Um, of course, the Duke of Buckingham being the most famous. But actually, one of the, uh, the male favourites fo- I'm focusing on at the moment in writing the sequel is Robert Carr, who's a fascinating character. And it's just really interesting how, obviously, James was very, very influenced by these actually quite lowly men. He gave them positions in his, his um, privy chamber but they didn't necessarily have political power. But, of course, they came to have political power because James gave them such favour. So he was a pleasure-loving king. I mean, it's sort of at odds with him being this kind of, you know, very strictly Protestant, witch-hating, you know, in many ways very strict. But he also loved to enjoy himself, and so his court was shocking to the English because um, whereas Elizabeth's had been um, set according to very strict rules of etiquette, James's was just a free-for-all, really. There was drunkenness every night, debauchery, the masks that he loved to watch would often descend into you know, the actors vomiting off the stage because they'd drunk too much and James was loving it and he was drunk himself. It didn't do any him any favours, though, with his English subjects who just thought he lacked kingly decorum um, but you do think what a contrast of it you can't you can't sort of stereotype him as one thing or another he was such a a mishmash of different characteristics
0: so was the informality of his court um a scottish thing that he brought down or was it was it just his personality i think it's a bit
2: of both because the scottish court wasn't as
0: regimented as the english but the overriding factor was james's personality uh, you mentioned um, James's wife, Anne of Denmark, who does feature in the book, and you have some interesting ideas about. I wonder whether you could just tell us also a little bit more about her and the strange position she was in of as the wife of a king who publicly enjoyed male favourites. It's
2: such a bizarre marriage. Well, of course, it's a marriage of convenience, as most royal marriages are. And um, Anne married James when she was 14, so very, very young. Um, And on the surface, it was a great marriage because by the time he became king of England, they already had three children. They had two sons. You always need a son, heir and a spare. And they had the daughter Elizabeth, who, of course, the gunpowder plotters planned to put on the throne. So they were, in one respect, successful. But you very much get the sense that behind the scenes, they couldn't stand each other. They couldn't really stand to be in each other's company Anne was incredibly dignified. She never gave anything away about how she felt about her her husband's male favourites. But it must have been quite humiliating for her. And I think it's no coincidence that as the reign progressed, they were really living separate lives. Anne was in Greenwich Palace most of the time, James was at Whitehall. They they hardly saw each other except for on public occasions when they would give this show of of marital unity. But Anne, I think, is fascinating. And what's really fascinating is that there is very strong evidence that she secretly converted to Catholicism. Well, if you imagine what James would have thought if he'd found out, you know, he is this great champion of, of Protestantism, and then his wife is receiving gifts from the Pope and she has Catholic ladies in her entourage. I had some fun with that in the plot.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: This obviously was a period of uh, religious tension left over from the, from the Tudors. How did James's religious stance impact on um, his court and the nation? Well,
2: um, there had been great hopes among the Catholic community that they were going to enjoy much greater toleration under James because after all, he was the son of a huge Catholic figurehead, Mary, Queen of Scots. So, uh, But he himself had been raised a Protestant, very much so. And in fact, rather than being more moderate than Elizabeth, uh, he was much more severe on the Catholics. And persecution of Catholics stepped up on an unprecedented scale after he became king. So he was almost as obsessed with rooting out Catholicism as he was with rooting out witchcraft. Now, this soon Sparked resentment, huge disappointment first, and then that turned to resentment and simmering plots, rebellions. There were a couple of plots within months of James becoming king. But of course, the biggest and the most famous of the Catholic plots was the gunpowder plot. I felt so lucky actually to have this as a a dramatic but real device um, that I could weave in so that it really brought forward the Catholic question the tensions around that the unpopularity of the king and just this what must have been an atmosphere of intense suspicion at court it was james himself was forever fearing an assassin you know people are jumping at their shadows and so interweaving the witch hunts with this kind of burgeoning terror plot really was a gift actually as a novelist Mm -hmm.
0: As the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, how was James so Protestant?
2: So James was raised by Protestant lords and his mother left him really when he was a baby, so she couldn't have had any influence. And in fact, he was raised to kind of despise Mary. He didn't grow up with any feelings of loyalty towards his mother, uh, as evidenced when Elizabeth had her executed and James didn't really act against her. But no, it was very much a Protestant upbringing and so
0: Mary had absolutely no influence. Um, As a novelist, I'm intrigued by how you balance your own story that you want to tell Mm -hmm. and the existing history. How do they kind of um, join together? Yeah. Well, I think my very
2: first drafts of this book uh, weren't fiction. Uh, They were described by um, my editor as faction. So I was basically writing the facts with a bit of kind of embroidery. But... I had to learn so much about the what skills are required for uh, being a historical novelist, and really, what I did try to do throughout is stick as closely as possible to the known facts. But you can't just, as I did in the early drafts, just tell them. You've it's uh, show not tell. It becomes my sort of um, watch phrase or whatever you might call it, because. Really, you have to weave in facts into dialogue, into descriptions. It's not like non-fiction where you just say, this is what happened. Um, and so I learned a lot, but I do, I mean, there's a spectrum of historical fiction. On the one hand, complete fantasy, and on the other, uh, the likes of Alison Weir, um, Hilary Mantel, who really go into their sources and, and really you can tell that they've done their research. I want to be closer to the latter, um, and I hope I have been in The King's Witch. Uh, because actually, it's not a natural skill for a historian to, frankly, make stuff up. You know, it's kind of... So where, where you have the the, the skeleton of, of a plot, um, more than that, really, and characters, of course, I had to embellish, though, um, because this is where historical fiction comes into its own. Because as a non-fiction historian, it can be hugely frustrating when there's a sudden gap in our knowledge. And you can kind of speculate and you have to say, well, it could have been this or that. But a gap for a novelist is a gift because you can just embroider and really let your imagination go. And I think probably my top tip for any aspiring historical novelist would be to choose a hero or a heroine about whom we know very little. So either you can just completely invent one, um, and that's been done very effectively by the likes of uh, Robin Young, Um, or you can go for one who we know very little about. And that was the case with Francis Gorgies, my rather unusually named, but real heroine. She, She really lived. We know the sort of basic facts about her life, but hardly anything else. And so I was able to let my imagination run wild.
0: Where did you find her? Where did you find the kind of nub of her character? So
2: I found her when um, several years ago, I wrote a book called Elizabeth's Women about uh, the women who served, influenced, shaped the Virgin Queen. And one of those was uh, an even more unusually named, uh, Helena Snackenborg, who was a Swedish lady-in-waiting. And uh, she came over in 1565. Elizabeth took a real shine to her. Helena loved Elizabeth. So she stayed and she married. And uh, her second marriage in England was to Thomas Gorgies. It was a real love match. And they had eight children. And Francis is the third uh, of those children. Why did I choose her? If I'm honest, I like the name. I just, you know, there are various other, you know, the, the other children, actually, we don't know much about them. We know less about the daughters than the sons, depressingly. Um, but Frances somehow just stood out to me. And also what I wanted was somebody who lived at the right time. She was born in 1580, so she would be, you know, she was, sort of, she was 23 when uh, James came to the throne. She was just the right age for me then to, to take her story forward. At first, it's quite intimidating because you think, oh, my goodness, I couldn't write a nonfiction biography of her. The literary isn't enough to go on. So I was looking at it with a historian's perspective at first before I kind of turned it on its head and thought, actually, this is a real opportunity, because if I don't know much about Frances, I certainly know a lot about the events, the context, the other characters she might have met. So Robert Cecil comes forward as a bit of a villainous character in the book, for example, Um, and... Francis ends up getting embroiled with one of the gunpowder plotters. So uh, so th- there are plenty of characters I did know about and plenty of situations that I could then put Francis in.
0: Were there any points where the history didn't serve your narrative and you had to diverge away from it? There were a f- few, not many,
2: I have to say. Um, I had some interesting debates with my Editor, um, because my instinct is always to try and stick to the history, but sometimes it just doesn't work. It doesn't work date wise. It does. It, it would make the narrative too ponderous. So we sometimes had to slightly concertina some dates, but it, it was nothing major. I have as close as possible stuck to the facts. But I mean, one notable. Um, it's not really a diversion. It was a theory that I began to develop about the Gunpowder Plotters. Always said there was some great patron behind. Uh, the the plot and uh, it's often been seen as Robert Cecil for good reason. But I, uh, as readers of BBC history will know, came up with, uh, with another candidate uh, in the form of Anne of Denmark. And it was one of those things, the more I researched it, the more I thought, actually, you know, this isn't just fiction. There's something to go on here. So it was lovely to be able to take that and tell it in detail for the magazine.
0: It must, though, be a, w- a weird process when you're so used to... Um being absolutely obsessively um, dedicated to facts, then throwing that out the window and being like, I'm actually allowed to make stuff up. It
2: is. It is. It's it's scary, but then incredibly liberating. (laughs) Um, And you think, you know, even if you get those reader letters saying that didn't happen, well, it's fiction. You know, it does give you a certain amount of freedom. And I, I... was very careful. I always, when I read historical novels, I'm always really disappointed if there isn't an author's note. And so I did include a, quite a detailed author's note, just explaining where I've diverged,
0: where I haven't, what was true, what was fiction. Mentioning uh, reading historical novels, what are some of your favourites or what do you look for in a good historical novel?
2: So I do like those that that are based on historical truth. Um, that said, though, um it's about the, the writing style. Um, certain writing styles really draw me in and very engaging. I'm a huge fan of uh, C.J. Sansom. Uh, he lives and breathes his subjects for many months before he starts writing, but he writes beautifully. I think those are authors who are able to really evoke the sense of the period, just the the sights and smells and sounds, when they just just feels like you are immersed in the period, I think that's nailed it
0: and mm-hmm. um, much of your career is focused around royal history um, for, through your work at historic royal palaces and also your books as well why do you think that royal history um British royal history is such an enduring obsession I know it's the best isn't it <laughs> um
2: well I mean there are so many fantastic stories it's and it's just, I think what fascinates people is that It's an ongoing story. Obviously, we still have the monarchy. It's a story that's still evolving, and it's one that's rooted in centuries of tradition. And so um, it's also one that, because of our rich heritage in this country, um, you can actually walk in the footsteps of the people you're writing about, whether it's Henry VIII at Hampton Court or William the Conqueror at the Tower of London, or Queen Victoria at Kensington, whatever it might be, you can actually, the places still exist. We are rich in history, we're rich in stories, and of course the fact the monarchy still exists
0: gives it that just icing on the cake, I think. Um, so what's next for you? I hear that you're going back to non-fiction. So I am, but I'm sort of juggling
2: now because um the King's Witch is the first of a trilogy. So First on my agenda is finishing the sequel, Um, but I've already in the meantime finished my next nonfiction, uh, which is out in November. And I have gone back to the Tudors. I couldn't possibly stray from the Tudors in nonfiction as well. And so my next book is actually a biography of Henry VIII, which you might think, surely we don't need another one of those. But um, it is a genuinely fresh look at Henry because it's called Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him. So just as with Elizabeth's women, I looked at Elizabeth through the eyes of her women because most people obsess about her male relationships. Of course, people obsess about Henry's wives, but what's the other story about the scores of men who shaped him throughout his life from his avaricious, suspicious... Um, shrewd father, Henry VII, through to his boisterous companions, the likes of Wolsey and Cromwell, and then those men who stayed loyal to him in his later years. And so you really do get a different sense of Henry. I I loved it.
0: What kind of picture of Henry does it paint then? So um,
2: at times, much, much more sympathetic, because you tend to think of Henry as this bloated tyrant. But when you see the personal relationships and what he was suffering often in private, um, in the privacy Of his palaces, and you see uh, the rationale behind some of his decisions. You see the agonizing he went through with his male companions before acting in public. But that said, undoubtedly, um, there are tyrannical tendencies in there. And as Henry becomes ill in later life and he's riddled with pain from his jousting injury, that's when he becomes more akin to the monster that we know him as. But even then, He's kind to his male favourites. He is particularly kind to the the more lowly-born members of the court, the likes of Will Summer, his jester, or Dr William Butts, his favourite physician. He's very loyal to uh, his close friends. And that doesn't... Obviously, loyal isn't a word that's often applied to Henry, but you really do see that with his male relationships.
3: That was Tracy Borman. The King's Witch is out now in the UK, published by Hodder and Stoughton. And in the US, it's also available, published by Atlantic. And as you heard, Tracy wrote a piece about Anne of Denmark and the gunpowder plot for the magazine a little while back. If you're a BBC History magazine subscriber, you can read that for free on our online library at historyextra.com. Meanwhile... Tracy will be speaking at both our York and Winchester History Weekend events this October. Head to historyweekend.com for more details and to buy tickets. And that is about all for today, but please do take the opportunity to browse through our podcast archive on historyextra.com. And then do join us tomorrow when we'll be speaking to Mary Beard.
4: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.